I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Arian Lewis. She is a professor in the Departments of Neurology and Neurosurgery and the Director of the Division of Neurocritical Care at NYU Langone Medical Center. As an expert on end-of-life social, ethical, and legal controversies related to death by neurologic criteria, she served on the steering committee for the World Brain Death Project, is an observer on the Determination of Death Act Drafting Committee, and the international advisor to the Canadian Critical Care Society Definition and Determination of Death Committee. She's also chair of the NYU Langone Medical Center Ethics Committee, the past chair of the Neurocritical Care Society Ethics Committee, and a member of the American Academy of Neurology Ethics, Law, and Humanities Committee. Dr. Lewis has over 100 publications and is a deputy editor of the Disputes and Debates section of the Neurology um, Publication and Seminars in Neurology. She's also a fellow in the Neurocritical Care Society. Ariane, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Sure. You know, we have um, an unusual relationship with death in this country, uh, during, especially during this time in history. Um, I spoke with Dr. Lydia Dugdale on the podcast recently, and we discussed how detached most of us are from death. So in pop culture, it's either someone, you know, getting shot to death in an action scene or someone who peacefully passes with their eyes closed, you know, family at bedside. Rare is the circumstance where death is shown otherwise. Um, and in our personal lives, we no longer encounter death. So by the 1990s, 80% of Americans died in institutions. Because we're not exposed to the process of dying or death, uh, we don't really know what to expect. And it, it comes often, I think, as a shock. So there is some resistance to its proclamation or arrival, particularly when we consider brain death, which seems to be a very modern concept. Tell us a bit about when brain death became relevant and, and why. So I think you're absolutely right that as a whole, you know, society does not necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about death in general, but in particular, the concept of death by neurologic criteria is really not on the radar of most people. Most people, when they think about death, think about death by cardiopulmonary criteria where the heart and lungs stop working. Uh, death by neurologic criteria. Uh, the idea of this originally came about uh, in the 1950s uh, after there had been advent of ventilators and significant improvements in cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which allowed people whose brains were critically injured such that they previously would have had cardiopulmonary arrest um, on account of the fact that they were not able to breathe spontaneously because their brain was not working, were now able to be sustained on machines. Uh, and so when this happened, there was the thought of, you know, some of these people are such critically injured and have such severe injury to their brain that perhaps they should, in fact, be considered dead. Uh, this came about again in the 1950s. Then in 1968 and at Harvard, an ad hoc group of uh, professionals, both in the fields of medicine uh, and in uh, uh, social history and ethics, um, came together uh, to be able to talk about the concept of death by neurologic criteria and the conditions that would need to be met in order to make somebody be declared dead by neurologic criteria. And throughout the 1960s and 1970s, the concept of death by neurologic criteria picked up throughout the United States and in some other parts of the world. Uh, and then this was legally fomented in uh, 1981 uh, when the Uniform Determination of Death Act indicated in the U.S. that death by neurologic criteria was the equivalent to death by cardiopulmonary criteria. And was there any resistance at that time um, 
the UDDA was, I guess, passed or codified or or was it kind of like just under the radar? Yeah, so I would certainly say that uh, it's not like every individual who heard about the concept of death by neurologic criteria was in agreement with this. But because of the fact that this was largely being discussed initially in academic circles and in medicine, uh, it was you know being discussed amongst individuals who supported the concept. Uh, so there was not a lot of pushback early on. In fact, when the Harvard paper was published in 1968, it was noted that it was felt that if physicians and amongst the medical community accepted that death occurred when there was loss of function of the brain and the specific conditions were met to declare death by neurologic criteria, that there was actually no need at that juncture to even consider incorporating this into law because if physicians said that this was death, then that was death. Um, then over the course of the next 20 years, uh, it was noted that there were actually obviously were, were substantial controversies related to this because death is not just a medical thing. Death is something that impacts society on the part of many different areas. Obviously, it has um, social and cultural implications, but also financial implications and legal implications. Uh, so this is not just something that's narrowed to the area of medicine. And so as a result of that, that's what led to the incorporation, the need to decide and incorporate death by neurologic criteria in the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Uh, and there had been lawsuits uh, in the previous 20 years uh, whereby uh, individuals objected to discontinuation of organ support um, because of the fact that there just had not been any legal uh, legal codification of the use of neurologic criteria to declare death. Uh, and so... Going forwards from there, even after death by neurologic criteria was incorporated in the Uniform Determination of Death Act, uh, there still had been, you know, some some semblance of objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death, and this has actually picked up, you know, over the course of the past decade or so. Hmm, interesting. And my my understanding from reading uh, the pieces and research you've produced about this topic is that over the course of recent years, there have been varying definitions or standards about brain death. Um, uh, one of the examples I recall is that there are like three leading formulations of brain death, but how those are even defined or, or declared can vary. What are those definitions? Yeah. So you're absolutely right that the concept of death by neurologic criteria uh, is not one single thing. Um, and also it's important to note that this is something that uh, was not discovered this is something that was identified by humans, which means that there is the potential for humans to argue as to what it should be because of the fact that it's not something that was discovered. So in terms of the general formulations of thinking about death by neurologic criteria, there are three broad categories. Uh, so the first is the higher brain category, whereby there is loss of function just of the higher brain, the supertentorial structures, the cortex. Uh, now, this um, formulation is not accepted legally anywhere in the world uh, because by this formulation, patients who are in a unresponsive state, a vegetative state, uh, would be considered dead um, if, if they are demonstrating no function of their cortex, um, then these individuals would be considered to be dead. So we would have a much broader definition of death than what we have at present. 
The second formulation uh, is the brainstem formulation. This, uh, again, is accepted uh, in the minority of countries, so mainly countries uh, that have had some some historical affiliation with England, uh, as the United Kingdom is where the brainstem formulation is accepted. So the brainstem formulation focuses only on the brainstem, the most primitive portions of the brain, uh, so indicating that there needs to be uh, absence of brainstem reflexes, coma, and inability to breathe spontaneously. The last formulation is the whole brain formulation. Now, in practice, the whole brain formulation is actually very similar to the brainstem formulation, meaning that the declaration of death by neurologic criteria requires, again, coma, absence of brainstem reflexes, and inability to breathe spontaneously. The area where there can be discord between the formulations of the brainstem and the whole brain is when there is injury that is primarily to the brainstem. Primary brainstem injuries that are very severe can ultimately lead to injury of the whole brain because of uh, swelling uh, and subsequent loss of blood flow supertentorially. However, it's unknown whether that always happens. So one series of, uh, of studies um, by Panos Varelis um, looked at patients who had primary injury to the brain stem and assessed whether or not they still had any evidence of supertentorial brain activity. And he found that uh, initially, despite the fact that these patients, uh, the patients that were included in his series, uh, had loss of brain function uh, as demonstrated by coma, loss of brainstem reflexes, and inability to breathe spontaneously on an apnea test, uh, he did find that using transcranial Dopplers that these patients did still have supertentorial blood flow. However, over the course of a couple of days, uh, the patients in his series lost that and thus could be declared dead um, based on the whole brain formulation. Uh, so the real area where controversy comes along, as I said, is when these patients have primary infratentorial injuries. Hmm. And, and these brainstem reflexes, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what what those might be or look like? Sure. So when you're assessing for brainstem reflexes, so brainstem reflexes is um, the most primitive part of the brain, the most primitive functions. So for example, when you shine a light in the eyes, um, the pupillary reflex causes the pupil, um, the black portion of the eye to constrict. When that reflex is not working, then the pupil does not get smaller. Uh, when the eye is touched, you should blink. Um, that's not something you're doing voluntarily. That's a reflex. Uh, but if that reflex is not working, then when the eye is touched, then there will be no blinking. Similarly, if someone irritates the back of your throat, you should cough or gag. Um, but if uh, there's loss of those reflexes, then there's no response uh, when, the, when the throat is irritated. Uh, additionally, uh, there's a reflex where when the head is moved back and forth, the eyes move in a certain way. And when someone has lost that reflex, the eyes just move with the head. And and the the language also of, of state laws can vary, or at least I know New Jersey is sort of different from all the other states. How are, how are these state laws kind of different uh, in determining brain death? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So as I mentioned, the Uniform Determination of Death Act was formulated in the U.S. in 1981. And what that states is an individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, is dead. A determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. 
It's important to recognize that the UDDA is not a federally uh, defined means to declare death. Rather, this was a recommended statute for every individual state to determine whether they were going to accept this statute um, as is or make any revisions prior to accepting this statute. Throughout the country um, since 1981, uh, the concept of death by neurologic criteria has been accepted legally. Um, However, there are some variations in the language that's incorporated in each individual state's statute. And in some cases, actually, the death by neurologic criteria has actually been accepted judicially, not in a statute. Uh, That being said, some of the variations um, are a little bit more subtle. For example, the phrase accepted medical standards is listed differently as listed as either currently accepted or ordinary standards or generally accepted, which colloquially all sounds the same thing. However, there actually can be some challenges related to this because of the fact that there have been varying medical standards for the the declaration of death by neurologic criteria over time. So as I mentioned, the Harvard standard came out in 1968. After that came out, other groups throughout the country uh, put forth some variations on the Harvard standard. The most recently put out and accepted standards are the 2010 American Academy of Neurology standard for brain death determination in adults and the 2011 pediatric standard that was put forth by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the Child Neurology Society, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. So this introduces some questions um, with respect to what is meant by the accepted medical standards. The second thing that actually varies from state to state is that there are a couple of states that incorporate the concept of religion and religious beliefs about death in in their statutes about death determination. For example, in Illinois, there is a statute that indicates that if I, if a, an individual, that when taking, when declaring death, religious beliefs can be taken into consideration. So that's left, obviously, sort of widely open for practitioners to decide how they want to handle and how they want to, quote unquote, take into consideration religious beliefs when determining time of death. In New York and in California, there's statutes and guidance that indicate that reasonable accommodation should be provided to objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death. Again, this is obviously pretty vague in terms of what is meant by reasonable accommodation and is left up to individual hospitals and providers to determine how they want to handle that. The one state where there's a very clear statute which indicates how to handle objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death based on religious beliefs is New Jersey. In New Jersey, the law indicates that If a family indicates that a patient would have a religious objection to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death, death is not declared based on neurologic criteria, and instead, cardiopulmonary support is continued and all measures are continued until there is death by cardiopulmonary criteria. This seems like chaos. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's a pretty fair definition of this. Um, I think you know we're certainly having a lot of efforts to to ameliorate the chaos, but yes, there 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 is a little bit of chaos. Yeah, and, and I mean, you one can imagine how uh, trying to apply these universe this concept universally would would end up in a ton of controversy. Um, can you take us maybe through a couple of the controversial brain death cases over the last couple of decades and, and how they were resolved? Yeah, absolutely. So 
I think it's important to recognize that there's a number of different reasons why families may object to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death, and those are really the controversial cases. So while there can be some variability in institutional guidelines, meaning that there's nonconformity to the accept the medical the accepted medical standards. Uh, at the end of the day, the the real controversial cases stem from objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death. Um, in fact, um, surveys of neurologists, intensivists, and chaplains have demonstrated that 50% have dealt with an objection to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death at some point during their career. There's a variety of different reasons why these objections can be made. Uh, they can be based on religious beliefs, but they can also be based on the just the belief that neurologic recovery is possible or the disbelief that death can occur when the heart is still beating. Uh, some of these controversial cases have been extremely highly publicized. Others are much more internal to institutions um, and do not terminate, do not lead to lawsuits. But there are some that have led to lawsuits. Uh, some of the most highly publicized lawsuits um, come from the United States. Uh, there are a couple that have come in Canada, but really the U.S. is is the main area where these these controversies have been highly publicized. So the first case that was, you know, in the, in the past decade that was a really substantial case that was very highly publicized was the case of Jahai McMath. Uh, this is a teenager who had a cardiopulmonary arrest in California um, after she had gone for an elective tonsil surgery. Uh, she unfortunately suffered significant anoxic injury to the brain and ultimately was declared dead by neurologic criteria by the physicians at the hospital there. The family objected to this determination, um, and ultimately, after a lot of back and forth and lawsuits in California, the family uh, proposed uh, to have her transferred to New Jersey. As I mentioned earlier, New Jersey is a state that allows for um, objection to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death to be met with continuation of organ support until cardiopulmonary arrest if the objection is based on religious beliefs. So the family here in this case was actually able to arrange for her to be transferred to New Jersey. Uh, support was then continued. And in New Jersey, she was not treated as though she was dead. Um, she initially was in a hospital in New Jersey and then subsequently was transferred um, to actually a residence where she was maintained on a, on a ventilator um, for a protracted period of time. Uh, she ultimately had a cardiopulmonary arrest about five years after the time that she had been dead, declared dead by neurologic criteria. Hmm. Uh, and um, one of the finer points, I think, of the, at least just from my readings of the, the controversy surrounding brain death declaration, seems to be the question of whether someone is dead by neurologic criteria, even though the brain can still produce hormones necessary for for instance, like puberty in a, in a uh, young child who who is declared uh, dead, and and I think there have been cases of this where patients have been declared dead, but because they continue to go through those hormonal changes or continue to produce hormones, um, there is some doubt about this. The American Academy of Neurology position statement on brain death indicated that it might be erroneous to say that a patient is alive because of this. Can you explain your your thinking and, and reasoning on this matter? Yeah. So, you know, I think that it's really important to recognize, as I mentioned earlier, that death by neurologic criteria and the specific conditions that must be met in order to declare a death by neurologic criteria is something that is defined by humans. So as a result of that, 
the standards that are met or the standards that are required to make this determination are based upon a human determination. And so I there are no protocols, no medical standards for death by neurologic criteria in either the U.S. or in other parts of the world that require loss of neuroendocrine secretory function. And so while it is very reasonable to make the argument that this should be lost in order to make the declaration of death by neurologic criteria, that is not included in any standards at present. So I think that that, you know, is important to recognize that, you know, over the course of the past 50 years, the core tenets of death by neurologic criteria have been coma, absence of brainstem reflexes, and inability to breathe spontaneously. As a result of this, there are many cases of individuals who continue to have neurosecretory function based on um, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, uh, continuing to secrete hormones. Uh, after they meet criteria for death by neurologic criteria. Um, and so I think that that's, that's sort of the key thing to keep in mind. Uh, this actually really comes into play, and the reason why this argument um, is brought up and this discussion is brought up is based on the wording of the UDDA, which states that uh, they're all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, must be lost in order to declare um, death. And what what needs to happen in order to resolve this controversy um, is for the UDDA wording to be revised uh, to be able to be more clear about what actually what conditions actually need to be met in order to declare death by neurologic criteria. The Uniform Law Commission is, in fact, working on revising the UDDA at present. Uh, it is unclear and unknown um, exactly what the revisions are going to be. Uh, but because of this and because of some of the other controversies we've spoken about later such or earlier, such as the objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death and the controversies pertaining to what constitutes the accepted medical standards for death by neurologic criteria, that prompted the Uniform Law Commission to review um, the Uniform Determination of Death Act and to note that there are concerns and to be able to think about how to revise those going forwards. Just out of curiosity, the Uniform Law Commission is composed of physicians, ethicists, lawmakers? Uh, how is it? Yeah, so the Uniform Law Commission, um, this is uh, a group of lawyers um, throughout the country who are responsible for cre the creation of laws um, or of um, federally recommended statutes. So the Uniform Determination of Death Act, as I mentioned, is a federally recommended statute. This is not federal law nor is it state law. This is a, a statute that is recommended for each individual state to take on. And so the Uniform Law Commission puts forth recommended statutes to hopefully be embraced by all states with the hope that there is uniformity throughout the country with respect to a number of different issues. Uh, so the Uniform Law Commission takes on various topics either for the need to revise a uniform law that they've already put forth or to create a new uniform statute um, and, uh, regarding a different topic. So in this case, I, I, having identified a number of different concerns with the Uniform Determination of Death Act um, amongst physicians, ethicists, philosophers, um, it was brought forth to the Uniform Law Commission a proposal to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Um, it, subsequently, a study committee was convened by the Uniform Law Commission. Uh, this study committee uh, consisted 
of the the members of the committee itself were members of the Uniform Law Commission, so meaning all lawyers. However, there are observers who were part of the study committee, and the observers are the air, the individuals who have subject matter expertise. So, uh, physicians, ethicists, um, other legal experts who are heavily involved in this area, who could provide um, guidance and education for the commissioners who are part of this committee um, about this particular topic. Uh, the study committee ultimately determined that it was appropriate to proceed with revising the Uniform Determination of Death Act, and a drafting committee um, was then convened. Um, and the drafting committee now has a two-year period to be able to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And it's, it's not known as of yet what the specific revisions are going to be. Uh, Additionally, regardless of how the UDDA is revised, their revisions will then need to be accepted or reviewed by all states throughout the country to determine how they want to handle it. So just because the UDDA is changed in a certain way, that doesn't mean that those changes are going to be implemented on an individual state basis. Additionally, individual states will have the opportunity to make amendments or edits to the new version of the UDDA, the revised UDDA. So while the hope in revising the UDDA is that we'll be able to make changes for the better, so to ameliorate some of the controversies associated with the UDDA, it is quite possible that there can still be ongoing controversies going forwards, uh, perpetuated by the fact that individual states are able to adapt or adopt any version of the UDDA that they would like. In, I guess, in this circumstance, where do these organizations like the American Academy of Neurology, um, what do they do? Do they kind of adapt what these this Uniform Law Commission says? Do they um, do their own thing and say, no, 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 we well, we we disagree with this. We're going to still have our own position statement. How do they? How do these organizations fit in? These medical organizations fit into to all this. So certainly at the end of the day, the law is the most important thing. And so the law would supersede any particular uh, medical society's comments or recommendations. Uh, And so, uh, you know, in terms of this process, the American Academy of Neurology, um, the Neurocritical Care Society have designated representatives who are observers uh, that are part of um, the drafting committee. Um, then there are also representatives um, of, you know, of amongst philosophers and legal experts. And so there's about 40 to 50 uh, observers who are part of this committee who are, you know, engaged in the process. But at the end of the day, it's the commissioners themselves uh, who are specifically responsible for any changes. Do the observers get to speak or do they really, are they just kind of their name, their observers? Actually, most of the conversation revolves around the observers and the commissioners will, will, will speak periodically, but the observers far outnumber the, the commissioners. Uh, and uh, so certainly there, there is a lot of input coming from the observers. Interesting. So it's a little bit like a hearing or something like that. Uh, yes, that, that does, that's a fair way to think of it. In the uh, American Academy of Neurology position statement, you and your, you, your co-authors wrote that the Academy, although respectful of the autonomy of patients and those acting on their behalf, recognizes that both legally and ethically, autonomy is not absolute and does not include the right to receive desired but unjustified medical treatment. What do you see as as desired but unjustified medical treatment? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? 
So I think when you're thinking about how to manage objections to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death, uh, there are obvious reasons both to consider continuing support and there are reasons to continue consider discontinuing support under these circumstances when an individual has been determined to meet this criteria for death. In terms of the arguments to continue support in the setting of these objections, of course, in the U.S., we embrace freedom of religion, freedom of privacy, respect for autonomy. And also under these circumstances, it is possible that if you allow for continuation of support for a period of time, that will allow a family to come to terms with the patient's death better than if you were to just discontinue support after death is determined, despite their objections. On the other hand, I should death be considered a negotiated standard, meaning we have two different means of criteria by which we can declare death. One is cardiopulmonary criteria, and the second is death by neurologic criteria. So we have very clear steps that we take after death is declared by cardiopulmonary criteria. And there's never a time after death by cardiopulmonary criteria in which you say, hmm, I don't know, are they really dead? I'm not sure. Let's spend some time, you know, deciding how we want to proceed. We just take clear steps. And so because death by neurologic criteria is the legal equivalent to death by cardiopulmonary criteria, from an ethical perspective, I, it's a little bit confusing to say that we should have a negotiated standard when death is declared by neurologic criteria. Relatedly, um, the, the principles of equity and universality indicate that we should handle both of these types of death in the same way. Uh, it's also important to recognize that if, uh, if resources are provided to individuals who are declared dead by neurologic criteria after they are dead, um, then it, it really sort of raises the question as to how we're managing our healthcare resources, given the fact that healthcare resources in general are, and hospitals in general, are of course intended to be facilities and resources for people who are alive. From the patient perspective, um, you can think that continuation of organ support in this setting could be a violation of their dignity and also could be potentially considered disrespectful to them to continue support after the time that they've been declared dead. Also for the families, this can increase the risk of complicated grief um, by protracting the process um, when they have been known to be dead. Um, and then, of course, on the part of healthcare professionals, continuing organ support after um, the declaration of death can really lead to moral distress and confusion for all parties. Hmm. In, an, in an ICU as a neurointensivist, when you're seeing patients, um, can you take us through the process of the diagnosis of brain death? Uh, and how that kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. So first, when you're thinking about whether an individual could potentially be dead by neurologic criteria, you have to have a clearly identified etiology for the brain injury. So you can't see a person who is comatose and say, hmm, I'm not really sure what's going on here. I wonder if they meet criteria for death. You have to have an identified etiology for their injury that in, in the extent of the injury needs to be catastrophic and the injury needs to be irreversible um, before moving forwards. And that, that so catastrophic, irreversible injury to the whole brain, um, leading one to then think about whether or not someone meets criteria for brain death. Second, it's necessary to exclude any confounders. So any things that could potentially make it appear as though the person meets criteria for death when in fact they do not, such as if there are drugs in their system or they have significant laboratory derangements, um, those would be circumstances in which you need to wait for those things to be corrected before you go about the process of declaring death. 
Then in terms of the declaration process itself, as I mentioned, the first thing to evaluate for is coma. So the evaluation for coma involves looking to see whether or not the patient um, will have any response to loud voice or to painful stimulation. Um, Secondarily, you evaluate for brainstem reflexes. So as I mentioned earlier, brainstem reflexes involve doing things like looking in the patient's eyes to see if the pupil size changes, looking to see if they have a gag or cough when you irritate the back of their throat, um, and um, moving the head in a certain way to look for eye movements. Um, so these are all a very in-depth evaluation to look for any signs of life. So when doing an evaluation for death by neurologic criteria, the purpose of the evaluation really is to see, is there any activity that is consistent with life? If so, despite the fact that it is clear that this person suffered a very severe injury to their brain, they do not meet criteria for death. If a patient's comatose and has absence brainstem reflexes, then the last portion of the evaluation is apnea testing. So apnea testing is an evaluation to look to see whether the patient is able to breathe spontaneously. So first, um, the ventilator is adjusted to get them to a state where they have a normal carbon dioxide level um, in their blood, and then they are subsequently actually taken off of the ventilator um, while they're being monitored continuously. And as they're taken off of the ventilator, what that means is that because the ventilator, the breathing machine, is not breathing for them, the carbon dioxide is not going to be expelled from their body unless they are able to take any breaths on their own. And what should happen as the carbon dioxide builds up in their body is that that should cause the medulla, the very base of the brainstem, to cause them to breathe. And so if they if their medulla, their brainstem is working, then when the carbon dioxide builds up in the body, then they should take a breath. And even just one breath is indicative of life. If during that time period that they're off of the breathing machine, though, they do not take any breaths, and we then send a test to look to see how high the carbon dioxide has risen. And if it's risen to a certain level, the established threshold, and they have not taken a breath, then that is consistent with death by neurologic criteria. Now, if there's some portion of the exam that can't be completed, for example, if there's been injury to the eyes, so therefore you can't look at the pupils to see whether or not the pupil size is changing, which means you can't evaluate the cranial nerves that are responsible for that, then it's necessary, in addition to this clinical evaluation that I've mentioned, to do an ancillary test. And an ancillary test is a test to look to see if there's any blood flow going to the brain or if there's any electrical activity happening in the brain. Hmm. And inevitably, as as many physicians know, there's there are times at which um, physician and patient cannot find a middle ground or cannot agree on how to proceed. Uh, in the cases of death by neurologic criteria, this seems like it would definitely hold true as well, particularly given the variability that we've talked about in, with regard to the definition. Um, so, a fa- patient's family disagrees with the diagnosis of death, but a physician diagnoses the patient as such. What? happens in this circumstance or how do you handle this circumstance? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of ways in which this can be handled. First of all, it's important to recognize that many institutions do not have clear guidance in their protocols as to how to handle these types of objections. And as a result of that, it gets hand, these circumstances are handled differently from case to case, which of course is quite problematic because this is something that should be handled consistently um, both within an individual institution, within an individual state, but even more so around the country. Right now, it's very confusing, such as the case I mentioned of, of Jahai McMath, whereby 
her family managed to have her moved from one state to another state so that she could have support continued. And because of the fact that New Jersey offers this very unique caveat whereby they will consider a religious objection um, to the use of neurologic criteria to declare death as an indication that support should be continued until cardiopulmonary arrest. That's very unique. And it's quite problematic, frankly, amongst a country to not have uniformity in terms of the practice and management of how these objections are handled. I Nonetheless, amongst the options as to what can be done under these circumstances, first, as is done in New Jersey, support can be continued um, aggressively as though the patient were alive up until the time of cardiopulmonary arrest. Additionally, support can be continued for a brief period, so it can be established to the family, we're going to continue support for X amount of time. Uh, Of course, uh, there can be attempts made to transfer a patient to another facility or to another state. Um, where support could be potentially continued there. In some cases, um, some limited amount of support is continued. So instead of continuing all aggressive measures, uh, a limited amount of support can be continued, such as just the ventilator, just the breathing machine, um, with the understanding that because more aggressive things are not being continued uh, at some juncture, the heart indeed is going to stop beating and the person will meet criteria for death by cardiopulmonary criteria as well. Um, And then, of course, in the most extreme is where clinicians have the potential to just discontinue support because the declaration of death has been made despite the family's objections. Hmm. And I imagine that last one is kind of where uh, people would not want to go because it it leads to probably incredible friction between the patient's family and the physician hospital. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, all of these objections um, can be very challenging uh, for for patients, for the families of patients, and also, of course, for the healthcare team, uh, on account of the fact that death by neurologic criteria is indeed legal death. And yet, you know, of course, uh, it is a desire to to work well with families and to, to recognize that this is the most serious thing that's ever happened to them and that they're, you know, really dealing with complicated grief and emotions. And really, of course, we all want to partner together to be able to ensure that we can, you know, move forwards from these events in the best way possible. But it, it is quite challenging for everybody involved. And in some cases, this these objections can escalate and can escalate to lawsuits, can escalate to involve media coverage. And these are things that, you know, of course, are, are, are not desired by individual clinicians or, of course, by institutions. Yeah. Uh, On that note, Dr. Lewis, thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for talking to me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.